So we're in Mark chapter 1 discussing the kingdom. Before Christ came, the prophet said the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus comes and he says the kingdom of God is here. And then the apostles said the kingdom of God is advancing. But we're in Mark chapter 1. Listen to the scripture. This is verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's a cataclysmic statement. The, the time is fulfilled. The long-awaited forecoming of Messiah King is here. All the sacrificial system, the foreshadowing of what was to be has now come in fulfillment. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. In a companion passage in Luke chapter 4, the same period of the life of the Lord, this is what it says starting in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Bam! Today. This is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the year of the opening of the eyes of the blind, the recovery of sight. This is the year of God's effusive blessing upon his people. The kingdom has come. And that's why in First Peter it says that angels basically stand on tiptoe longing to look into these things to see the kingdom of God. So, so Jesus says the kingdom of God is radically breaking in. And the kingdom of God is a dynamic, pulsating, growing thing. Either, either evil is growing or righteousness is growing. It's a dynamic thing. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about the pulsating reality of the kingdom. And it says this, starting in verse 17. Paul says, now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do or non-believers do. In the futility of their minds... They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. It's a process. It's pulsating. Evil's pulsating. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, and they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not how you learn Christ. The kingdom of God is pulsating. It's dynamic. Verse 22, you are taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and 
is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed, present tense, ongoing, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and in true righteousness and in true holiness. And then he says, you know, because you're being renewed by the spirit, because the kingdom of God is here, he says, put off falsehood. Just speak the truth. He says, don't be known as people who are angry. In fact, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And if you've been stealing, no longer steal, but work with your hands to share with those who are in need. And when it comes to your speech, only speak that which is building other people up. And, and he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's a living relationship with a living God. The kingdom of God is, is dynamic and it's pulsating and it's real and it's deep and it's rich. And so my thesis this morning is this. I'm going to deal with this passage and the little word immediately. The word immediately is used nine to 11 times, because I translate different words in this passage, immediately. That the kingdom of God, the relationship we have with Jesus, demands an immediacy in my spirit. And so as I deal with the Lord immediately, I experience his power and his joy and his provision as I respond. And God calls me, God calls us to faithful living. Now, let, let me give you a little illustration. So if this is a linear line, there are two extremes. Extreme number one is what I call triumphalism. The other extreme is retreat. Triumphalism in the church goes something like this. If we only elect the right person and pass the right laws and have the right majority of whatever, then we can bring in the kingdom of God. And that's just a lie. The kingdom of God is brought in by the preaching of the gospel that has accoutrements, absolutely, but it's the preaching of the gospel, triumphalism. The other extreme is retreat, where you say basically... Uh, the world's going from bad to worse. I'm going to withdraw and do nothing and not be involved, become apolitical. Uh, just uh, someone I respect very much told me a few weeks ago that they may just buy 50 acres and stay there and become kind of a Montana militiaman. And I said, that's unbiblical. Somewhere the Bible teaches, it's, it's right here, right here, faithful living it's what I call the William Wilberforce option. More about that later. Let me just talk to you about what I experienced a few years ago. Uh, in my own life, 1980-ish to 1991 was kind of a golden age for our culture, I, I believe, my personal opinion. 1980 to 1991, they were heady days for, for believers. There were days when it seemed like conservatism and biblical morality was, was, was going full blast. Uh, we saw, for example, in 1989, the collapse of communism. I remember 1987, listening to a man named Ronald Reagan stand in front of the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. And he had one sentence in a speech, and his national security advisor, a man named Colin Powell, and his chief of staff, and a man named James Baker, said, Mr. President, I would not use this sentence because it's pretty inflammatory and pretty negative. And he said, I don't care, I'm going to use it anyway. And he did. And here's the sentence. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Never forget it. 1987, June 16th. And two years later, I'm sitting home, and, and really, the unthinkable happened. 
the wall came down. Communism was wiped out. The Eastern Bloc was open to the gospel. It was a glorious day for the church. The same year, there were vast democracy demonstrations in Beijing. Remember this iconic photograph that will never be forgotten. A young student standing in front of these tanks. And it appeared for a, a brief window of time that, that China would go into democratic reform and free speech and, and open society, but it did not. In fact, they're more closed now than they've ever been, historians tell us. But still, it was a heady, it was a heady time for, 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 for Baptists who loved the Bible. I remember being involved in Baptist life and how we, we made a decided turn back to robust, biblical, Christ-centered theology and recaptured our seminaries. And it, well, now we have incredibly strong seminaries. It, it was, a, it was a, a, a heady time. The first Gulf War that, that was over before we thought it was going to be over. And I remember having a giant celebration in 1991 in downtown Charleston and a chaplain telling me we thought we would have hundreds or thousands of men in body bags, and we do not. But now I get the sense that we're kind of on our heels, as we should be. We've been through some hard times. The decision this summer about same-sex marriage, uh, no longer talking about the exceptional reality of being an American. It's just different. It's, it's easy to go into retreat, but here's my plea. Whether it's good times or bad times, we're called to be faithful. And I call this the William Wilberforce option. William Wilberforce was a man who died in 1833. He was from Great Britain. William Wilberforce was raised in a privileged home, had enormous wealth. He was five foot two, loved music, great intellect, wonderful speaker, became a member of parliament as a very young man, age 23, member of parliament. His best friend was William Pitt, the prime minister. William Wilberforce had an exposure to evangelicals growing up because of a godly aunt and uncle, but his mother quickly withdrew him from that because she did not like the gospel, did not like religious people. And so he grew up as a, really a man who had no concern for the things of God. At the age of 24, 25, he does a, a trip through continental Europe with another man named Isaac Milner, who was an evangelical, and they studied the New Testament and Greek together. And as Wilberforce studied and thought, the Holy Spirit dealt with him, and he became a believer at the age of 25. And after he became a believer, he said, I believe God has saved me to bring about the reformation of manners in England and to end slavery, which was an unbelievable thought, multi-multi-million dollar industry. And, and Wilberforce said the reformation of manners includes having Sunday schools throughout England for children who can, who can learn the Bible as they read and write. It, it, it deals with dealing with debt with people who are going to debtor's prison, helping people out, bringing families together. It deals with what we would call uh, being the forerunner of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals because he said animals are made by a great and sovereign king and they're part of his creation. So he said the Lordship of Christ impacts everything in my life but especially slavery. And he labored for 40 years, 37, to see the abolition of slavery in 1833 in the British Empire, and 8 million slaves were freed. But he started a group called the Clapham Set. It's a Clapham's little city outside of London, and some evangelicals bought a house and put some smaller houses there, and they would go there periodically on the weekend to sing and pray and strategize and plan. Let me just read a couple of comments from this book called The Clapham Sect. 
So these people would get together. And this is what it says. They, they lived in each other's spare bedrooms. They married each other's brothers and sisters. They prayed together. They worked together. They dreamed and schemed together. They consoled each other and criticized each other with ruthless honesty. And that is their story. Wilberforce was the guiding light. In fact, one man wrote about the Clapham sect. He says, we are all committed to the reality of Christ, and we rejoice that Wilberforce is a candle that should not be hid under a bushel. He's enormously gifted. This is what Wilberforce said shortly after he was converted. He th thought about going into the ministry, becoming a, a pastor. But he had a, a man in his life who was older by the name of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound that Saved a Wretch Like Me. And Newton goes to him and says, you know, I'm not telling you what to do, but God may want you to stay in Parliament to make a difference for Jesus. And Wilberforce prayed about it and decided that's what he would do. And 40 years later, the slaves are free. But this is what it says. Wilberforce was persuaded to stay into politics. Much as he taught himself to be grieved by his personal sins, they were pretty piddling, such as humanly speaking or sarcasm or pride or working on Sunday, what struck him more deeply was the sense of half a life frittered away. He was 26. Along with the wealth and influence that God has so graciously blessed him with. He said, quote, the most valuable years of life are wasted and opportunities have been lost which can never be recovered, close quote. That's an overstatement. He's 26, okay? But you see the drive there. Wilberforce was driven for the rest of his life by the urge to put this right and to have something to show for his influence in the world for Christ. And to do so, he needed to maintain that influence of seeking the Lord. Not just, he, he was a faithful man. So see, my, my, my plea is that, that we would be people faithful unto the Lord. That, 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 that the immediacy of the call of Jesus in my life means that I respond to who he is and I am faithful unto God. And the immediacy, I'm going to say in this passage, extends to three broad areas as I look at the text. The first is my relationships. The second is how I respond to the, the Word of God that compels me to address evil. And thirdly is just serving people. The word immediately. There's an immediacy in the Christian faith. So first of all, the area of relationship. Listen to the Scripture. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, verse 16, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they, they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately... He called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So, so I'm just reading something. You know what? what, what, what it's just, there's an immediacy about relationships, that, that Christ must be supreme. An old Puritan named Thomas Brooks wrote this. He said that a true penitent knows neither father nor mother, right eye nor right hand, but he will pluck out the one and cut off the other. And he's referring to Christ's statement that if your right eye causes you to sin, metaphorically, pluck it out and throw it away. It's better to go to heaven maimed than to hell with a full body. He says, you know, be, be diligent about obedience. And saying neither father nor mother goes back to a passage in the, the book of Luke where Jesus says this, if anyone comes to me, verse 26, 
and does not hate his father and mother and his brothers and his sisters and his wife and his children and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So hate. What, what's the word saying there? What he's saying is that, is that when Christ is supreme in our lives, he gives us a cohesion and a joy and a purpose that makes us better sons and daughters, that makes us better brothers and sisters, that makes us better husbands and wives. Christ must be supreme. Then he says, later in the same passage, he says, salt is good, but if, if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness ever be restored? How, how can the saltiness be restored? He says, be very careful regarding the reality of Christ in your life. Be salty. Be, be full of energy and passion and, and glory. And if you want power in your life and if you want wholeness and harmony, then have an immediacy in your relationships. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, he's discussing marriage, and he said if a wife has a husband who basically deserts her or dies, she's free to remarry. He says, I only have this to say, she must marry in the Lord. Believers marry believers. Christ must be absolutely supreme. In the second of this passage, we see how the Word of God is received and it leads to the combating of evil. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching and they were astonished, which means to be amazed and bowled over. They were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what, what is this? A new teaching with authority, and he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his, spread, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of, of Galilee. And I said, yeah. So as I read that, I said, am, am, am I receiving the word in such a way that I confront evil in myself and those around me? Am I so astonished at the goodness and the mercy and the kindness of the triune God in the person of Jesus that I'm bowled over and, and, and I confront evil in me and evil around me? Am, am I that, that type of, of person? I was reading some interviews recently with, uh, with this man. He's um, my favorite actor, Denzel Washington. And Denzel Washington was raised in a home. His dad was a pastor in a Pentecostal church, the Church of God. And he said when he was a young man, I think he was 10, his father left he and his mom and walked away from the Lord and walked out of Denzel's life. They were basically thrown on to extreme poverty. And he said, my, my dad 
Never came back into my life. He'd come in periodically, but never, never connected with me, never came to my sporting events. I never knew my father. And in 1991, when Denzel was making the film Malcolm X, his daddy died. This is what Denzel said. He said, when my dad died, the things that I'd like to do, he never was involved in. And so when he died, I never shed a tear for my father. I never did through the funeral and the aftermath because there is no connection with my dad. I read that and I just, I just, my heart grieved us. I said, here's an incredibly gifted man who was never blessed by his dad. And here's a dad who was never blessed by the privilege of having a son like this man. And I thought, did somebody ever say to this man, what you're doing is evil? Evil is dynamic as is righteousness, and you're choosing to go the way of evil? And I, I said to myself, as, as I read the Bible, and as I study it, am I overwhelmed with the greatness of Christ in such a way that I confront evil in me and around me? And then the, the third area is that immediately they met the needs of people. Listen. And immediately, verse 29, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Later in this chapter says, a leper, a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean and move with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he was made clean, and Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away immediately and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof of, to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So Christ says, you know, go straight to the priest, offer the sacrifice, show the cleansing, because once you do that, you'll become part of your society again. You'll be embraced by the culture. You'll no longer be an outcast. You'll be part of your culture. But it was all about meeting the needs of people. It's all about advancing the kingdom by loving people. I just thought recently I've been very encouraged about six weeks ago, we had an emphasis on what we call our friends ministry. Maybe five weeks ago, friends ministry being a special group at this church that are dedicated to meeting the needs of special needs children. And how that gladdens the heart of God to give parents and caregivers a respite. And then three weeks ago, we talked about orphan ministry and foster care and how Caring for orphans and being involved in foster care is a direct application of James chapter 1 and it is a God-honoring calling. And just eight days ago, we had something called Love on Charleston. We had, I think it was 340-plus people who went to 21 different sites and put in floors and painted and cleaned houses and shared a good word about Christ, just loving people. And I thought, how that must gladden the heart of God just to love people. And if I'm to experience the power and the joy of the Lord, I, I meet the needs of people. There's an immediacy about following Jesus when it comes to caring for people. 
Let me give you a few applications. Number one is this. We're to live, say it strongly, on the basis of faithfulness. Whether we're in a good or bad time, we are to be faithful, faithful, faithful people. We're to be people who realize that it's not about us, it's about Jesus. And I say that, you hear that, you go, yeah, but, but we live in a culture where it's all about us. I recently read an, an excellent book entitled The Road to Character. Let me just give you some quotes from that book. His thesis is that after World War II, a self-affirmation, self-exaltation movement was started that has become full-blown in the last years. He said, 1946, there's a man named Rabbi Josiah L. Liebman who published a book entitled Peace of Mind. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for several weeks. And there's people to engrave a new morality on their hearts, one based on setting aside the idea that you should repress any part of yourself. Instead, you should love yourself properly. You should not be afraid of your hidden impulses. You should respect yourself. You should trust yourself, close quote. Liebman had an infinite faith in the infinite goodness of men and women. Quote, I believe that man has infinite potential and given the proper guidance. There is hardly a task he cannot perform or a degree of mastery in work and love he cannot contain, close quote. In other words, there's an embryonic glory in our hearts that just needs to be fostered into full-fledged living. Same year, Benjamin Spock. Some of us are older, remember that name well. Benjamin Spock released his first book on raising children. And he said in this book, quote, if your child steals something, you should give him a present, something similar to the item that he stole. That will show that you care for your child and she sh he should have his heart's desire if it is reasonable, close quote. So if somebody steals, you give him a present. That teaching never made it to Yadkin County, North Carolina. I got a whooping when I stole. Okay. 1949, another bestseller. For three months in the New York Times bestseller list by a man named Harry Overstreet entitled The Mature Mind, strongly critical of the Reformation in St. Augustine and their emphasis on human sinfulness and the need for grace. He said, because of this, quote, we have denied to our species the healthy blessings of self-respect. This emphasis on internal weakness encouraged people to distrust themselves and to malign themselves, close quote. And then Norman Vincent Peale, you know that name, wrote a book in 1952 entitled The Power of Positive Thinking, urging readers to cast aside negative thoughts and through pep talks to talk themselves into greatness. Carl Rogers, potentially the greatest psychologist of the 20th century, got away from the negativism of Freudianism, and he talked about man's behavior being sublime and exquisitely rational, and you can achieve greatness all on your own. And then, and then in the book, he, he criticized Dr. Seuss. And I thought, really? Dr. Seuss? And I love Dr. Seuss. I grew up with green eggs and ham, the cat and the hat, uh, the Grinch Who Stole Christmas. I love Dr. Seuss. But he said his last book fed into this movement. And I thought, well, I'm going to do some scholarly research. So I went and got the book. Okay? It's entitled, Oh, the Places You'll Go. The last book Dr. Seuss wrote in 1990 before he died in 1991. I'm just going to read part of it to you, uh, Dr. Seuss, um, and let you just listen to it. 
So, opening statement. You have brains in your head and you have feet in your shoes and you can steer yourself in any direction you choose. You're on your own and you know what you know and you are the guy who will decide where to go. Later in the book, he says, there are people waiting, waiting for a train to go, waiting for a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come, or the rain to go, or the phone to ring, or the snow to snow, or waiting around for a yes or a no, or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting, waiting for the fish to bite, or waiting for the wind to fly a kite, or waiting around for Friday night, or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake, or a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting No, but that's not for you. Somehow you'll escape all that waiting and staying and you'll find the bright places where boom bands are playing. So waiting's not for you. It's for people who are not like you. All the places you'll go, there is fun to be done, there are points to be scored, there are games to be won, and the magical things you can do with that ball will make you the winningest winner of them all. Fame. You'll be more famous as famous can be with the whole worldwide watching you win on TV. Except when they don't because sometimes they won't. I'm afraid that sometimes you'll play lonely games too. Games you can't win because you'll play against yourself. In other words, the only time you won't achieve fame and do great things is because you don't think enough of yourself. And then he says this. And you will succeed. Yes, you will indeed. 98 and three quarters percent guaranteed. Kid, you'll move mountains. So if your name be Buxbum or Bixby or Bray or Mordecai or Allie or Van or Allen or O'Shea, you're off to great places. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting, so go on your way. And you say, that's not, not, what he's saying is that it's all up to us. It's all about us. And if you don't have fame and score winning goals on TV, which I've never done personally, I would like to have done so, it's all because you don't think enough of yourself. And I, th- that's just, to me, a, a pitiful way to go about life. It's just clearly unbiblical because it's really not about me. The, the third thing I want to say is this. As we pray thy kingdom come, and we understand the immediacy of the kingdom where, where Christ becomes all in all and where Satan is defeated and the church grows and increases and, and where we take every thought captive with the obedience of Christ according to Heidelberg Catechism, question 123. As, as we do that, we should live with a sense of expectation and enthusiasm about life. Now, I was, I was thinking about this and doing some reading about what people give their lives to and, 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 and what, they, what, what they go for and what they're about. And, for example... I read about a guy named Shadrach Anderson. Shadrach Anderson is 65. This is two years ago. And he's given his life to teaching people the joy of running backwards. So Shadrach Anderson has completed numerous marathons running backwards. He went from Los Angeles to San Francisco running backwards to show people the joy of running backwards. That's 483 miles running backwards. Now, I think that's fine. That exercise is good to a point, but... That's what you want to give your life to. And then one thing that always has mesmerized me, maybe it shows you how that I'm not really have much depth, are these hot dog eating contests on the 4th of July. So I just read a couple articles on hot dog reading 
eating contest. Um, the, the hot dog champion eater of the world is a guy named Joey Chestnut from the great state of California. And he, he's won, he made $150,000 last year in food eating contest. And in fact, last Thanksgiving, he ate nine pounds of turkey in 10 minutes. I'll try that on Thursday. I don't think I'll do it. Nine pounds of turkey in 10 minutes. He, he won a contest last year. He ate 121 Twinkies in 10 minutes. Yes, yeah, pretty amazing. He talks about how he trains and what's he, what he does and how he prepares for these contests. He says, my doctor is happy with how my body has responded. He worries about me when I gain weight, but he said it's better to eat like this than to go out on a football field and get hit. That's Joey Chestnut. And then I read about the, the Chinese champion of, of eating a man named Takura Kobayashi. And Takura Kobayashi is, is, is 128 pounds. He's only 5 feet 8. But, but he's got this method whereby he moves his body so he can eat bread and hot dogs soaked in water. And then in 2011, some of the women said, we need to have a women's arm of the hot dog eating contest. So Nathan's hot dog eating contest in 19 or 2011, had their first contest, and a woman named Sonia Thomas became the champion, the first woman to win the women's division of the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. She ate 40 hot dogs in 10 minutes and won $10,000. And I thought, you know, not, not to be overly critical, but you can extrapolate that out. And we may not be doing backwards running or hot dog eating, but we give our lives to that which really doesn't count. And I, th I thought, Lord... May your kingdom come in my life, and may your will be done in, in my experience. And I just, I just, let me give my life to that which is significant. And I even, I even thought, you know, what, 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 what am I going to do when I retire? And I thought, you know, I, I may, I'm going to get involved in youth ministry. I, I may go to campus outreach meetings and just carry bags, as long as I can carry bags, and sit in the lobby and talk to students. Because... It's all about the next generation. It's all about impacting others with the kingdom of God. Now, I'm a newly minted grandfather. I, I admit that. So my antenna up, but I picked up a book this week about a guy named John Elias, who's a Welch preacher, died in 1840. And I just, I just, I read this now. Yes. John Elias, wonderful use of God, died in 1840, was born into a home where his mom and dad would occasionally go to church. And later in his life, John Elias talked about how he came to faith. And he said, I came to faith because I had a granddaddy. Listen to this. My grandfather took great delight in me from my birth. As soon as I began to walk and talk, I liked him very much. The goodness of the Lord was remarkable in his life. My grandfather was a moral man. He exceeded my parents in his devotion to Christ by far. He took it upon himself to teach me and to train me as far as he could in the paths of virtue before Christ. He began to inform me when I began to talk of the danger of using bad words, of lying and swearing and taking God's name in vain. He tried to teach me to respect the worship of the triune God. Elias says, when I was seven years old, I had the smallpox, which often spelt death. I was greatly afflicted with the disease it was very heavy. Indeed, there was a doubt for weeks about my recovery. I lost my memory for some days, and my eyes were closed because of swelling. I was blind for a fortnight, but the Lord was pleased to restore me and save my life. I remember when I began to recover and to open my eyes that my grandfather was beside my bed 
weeping and pleading for God for my life. And then he asked me, my dear boy, do you remember what I taught you about the Lord? And I did, and he rejoiced. And I thought, thank God for granddaddies and aunts and uncles and cousins and moms and dads and brothers and sisters who get a vision for the kingdom of God. To do something that is truly significant. And so by, by way of application, let me just give you a few things here. Number one, as you think about the immediacy of the kingdom, ask yourself this week, how can the kingly rule of Jesus be extended in my life and in my world? Become world citizens. I mean, pray for the world. Pray for cities, for countries. In my life and the world. What is it? Number two, am I so amazed and overwhelmed at the teaching of Christ that I confront evil in me and around me? Number three, do I understand the Wilberforce option? I'm called to be faithful. Faithful unto God. To get up every day and go forward in faith and represent Him. So just, I rejoice in the goodness of the Lord. Now, let me, let me give you a report this morning. A couple things, church. We, um, the elders, have, 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 have voted to sanction, deputize Palmetto Christian Academy, our school that we love dearly, to go forward with a fundraising project to build um, classrooms and a gym that will enhance our school and build up our high school, which I think is, is vitally important and necessary. We love Palmetto Christian Academy. And, and so John Graham, one of our elders, a dear person in this church, is going to be leading that campaign. And you're going to be, some of you hearing about that, but just be aware of that. Be prayerful for that. Um, right now we have a gym, as you know, we are our contemporary worship worships in the gym. Uh, it has limited seating for sporting events, and the gym is not regulation size. I didn't know that until a couple of years after it was built. So it's a little short and a little narrow because of financial constraints, and so we can't host certain tournaments, and um, the gym is named after me, okay? So maybe that's why they named it after me, because it's not full length, and uh, it's called the gym or the Buster Dome or whatever you want to call it, but but uh, the new gym will be regulation size. We can host uh, events, reciprocal re agreement, potentially with the town of Mount Pleasant for certain issues so we can impact our community, more basketball leagues to preach the gospel, so forth and so on. It's a good thing. Be praying for that. Pray, pray for Mike Lindsay. Uh, Mike has been our headmaster for five and a half years and has done a wonderful job. He's retiring. Pray for our school. We're asking God to give us the right person to lead our school forward in the years to come. A very huge prayer request. More about that later, but please, please know that. Now, two weeks from now, we're going to ask you to vote on an issue. I'll try to explain it uh, briefly. Last November, you voted to allow the church to go $1.5 million into debt and to secure another million dollars to cover pledges as they come in, to, to, to pay for the pledges that we, we thought were coming in. We still think those pledges are coming in, but for the time being, we're going to ask you to allow us to be for total integrity to, to take the $1.5 and the $1 million and to roll it under, under one loan. No more debt, but just to combine those two things together. Uh, we have a very conservative debt policy. We're not violating that. The Finance Committee, Elders have been working on this. That's our recommendation. Um, so... 
their listening sessions today after the worship service and next week after both worship services. In addition to that, and this is a housekeeping issue, uh, in 2005, the bank gave us a $750,000 line of credit. I had no idea we had a line of credit until two weeks ago. And we've never touched it. We've never discussed it. But the bank has come back to us, and they said, really, if you'd have a line of credit, per our Constitution as well, the church has to approve a line of credit. So we're asking you to give permission. It's a housekeeping issue to allow us to have a line of credit if in the future there is a need to ever tap into that. So that, that's, that's really kind of a housekeeping thing. We're going to be both on one ballot two weeks from today. Um, I, I, think, I think that's okay. I think I explained it okay. Big picture thing. But this is it's, it's a day to be glad. We're going to be in our new sanctuary. Let me show you this. I almost forgot this. We did a, a drone flyover. And this is really cool of, of the sanctuary that's going up. And uh, we're going to have the contemporary worship. We'll be here, give them a home. There's going to be a gathering places, offices, music suites. Sanctuary is coming together. The walls are going up. And we're going to be in there, God willing, in the month of April. That's as far as I think people are willing to make a commitment. In 2016. In the month of April, 2016. So it is, it is, it is a glad thing. And uh, the, the word is good. So as we go into Thanksgiving, just thanks be to God for his, his goodness. Thanks be to God for his mercy. Thanks be to God for calling us to something that's bigger than ourselves called the kingdom of God. This is to be preached here and around the world. So, amen. Well, let's stand and we'll close in prayer, please. Lord, thank you for the, um, the immediacy of the kingdom of God. Thank you that, um, that the radical inbreaking of Jesus leads to immediacy. In this passage, we see in our relationships in our receiving truth and confronting evil and in just meeting the needs of people. So make us that type of, 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 of people. Uh, make us people who are called to and understand the call to faithful, faithful living as we walk before you. And we bless your holy name. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Thanksgiving.